0: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the Idea Fountain as we kick off season four. Every single month on the Idea Fountain, I interview somebody who has changed my life in some way. This isn't promotional. Really, every single person must have either done something or said something or like helped me change the way I viewed the world. And it doesn't matter if it is a superstar, multi-platinum music producer, or the co-founder of Unicorn Tech Startup, or a nun. I hope you get something from every single interview. Today, we're going to be talking about jukeboxes, which mean so much to me. And uh, before we get into my little unorthodox jukebox, I just want to remind you, you can sign up for the Idea Fountain newsletter and get all the updates on tapings, how you can be involved and connect with the guests, at juliepilot.co. That's Julie P I L A T dot co. And also follow the idea fountain at the idea fountain. Here we go.
1: I e
2: o N E A I N. This is the Idea Fountain. Life-changing conversations. All right. Okay, I'm
0: gonna kick it off. Thanks for hanging out for another episode of the Idea Fountain and Happy New Year. I'm Julie Pilot with Don Muller of Jukeboxes Unlimited. And uh, as always, we have a little fireside chat. I'll have you guys unmute yourselves really quick. I'll shout you out. Corey, Kat, Stacy, say hi. Oh. Hello. All right. That's my version of uh, everybody in the crowd makes some noise. (laughs) Um, Don, you started Jukeboxes Unlimited in 1971. Um, Some people know you as the jukebox seller to the stars. You also, the business has done repairs and rentals, but I want to kick off with the story about how we first got connected. You got a cryptic call from a record label. Is that right?
1: Well, do you want to go back to the original thing that happened? Yeah. So I get a call from a producer to bring a jukebox up to a mansion up in Beverly Hills. Um, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. It's not a, it's like a party, but they don't care about the music. So I just fill it up with, my junk checkout records in my, from my shop. And I go in there, pick it up, take it back. And then the, the same fella calls me and says he wants uh, the jukebox again. And i now take that jukebox over to a, a North Hollywood um, industrial park. And they have a couple of guys and uh, some cameras and things. And I set the jukebox up, show them how it works. And then this car pulls up outside, and uh, little car and guy gets out and he goes to the trunk, opens it up, pulls out a gorilla outfit, puts it on, and walks into the room. And I'm thinking, what what the heck is this? So I leave. Then eventually, um, uh, Trevor contacts me and says, "I'm I'm getting a word of a." A jukebox with uh, 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 with a gorilla, and is this something that you are involved in? And I said, I don't know it. It might be, not sure. And so then,
0: uh, <laughs> I, I love that uh, a jukebox with a gorilla. Is this involve you? And Maybe. so.
1: Then, all of a sudden they're sending me pictures. Now, I, I'm not actually putting everything together quite at that point. And they send me pictures of this other jukebox with um, a, a, a gorilla. And, I, and they asked me if I had one of those. And I said, no, I don't. I have one of these other ones. And it worked out to be the one that they had originally rented for the party. So this was getting so confusing for me as to what was happening. And then eventually, uh, you know, they, had uh, when the jukebox came back from the guerrilla shoot it had i had already printed up all these songs for the jukebox that were only his yeah so i i knew the songs before the album was even out yet and i had to type up all these little title strips and then when the jukebox came back it had 45s in it that were my 45s, but they had glued on Atlantic labels onto the records.
0: And and what was the artist on the records? The big uh, reveal, the artist was
1: my mind, just uh, went blank. Bruno Mars! Bruno! Bruno, <laughs> my god!
0: And it, and it was so funny, it was so funny because um your son Trev and I worked together. And he walked into my office one day and he said, you know, my dad rented a jukebox to this artist that you play on KISS. Uh, I think it's going to be his new album cover, uh, Bruno Mars. And I said, wow, Mark Ronson produced that album. I just heard the record. That's going to be a really good record. And then... Long story short, the funny thing is, we ended up doing a contest at Kiss FM that you could be Bruno Mars BFF and somebody could fly to LA, go to the studio, hear the album, be in his music video, and they got the unorthodox jukebox. And the winner said, I don't want records. Do you have anything that plays CDs? (laughs) how much does it hurt your heart when people say things like that
1: (laughs) oh my gosh
0: and so i said they they didn't take the jukebox they wanted the CD one i said give me a good deal trev i'll buy it and i got the bruno mars The, the funniest thing about it though was um Bruno was absolutely tortured that I um, had his jukebox from the cover of his album, and for years he was saying, "I want to buy it from you," and that's like getting a money from an artist is like payola. And I was like, "I can't, I can't take money from you." Um, but I told him that that jukebox is like your World Series ball, and I know the people who had it, and they have more, and if you ever want the jukebox for real, I will give it to you, just buy a replacement of the same one, and it took almost 10 years, and he did it.
1: Well, you know, uh, he, Atlantic, he said, first of all, Atlantic was going to buy it for him, Mm -hmm. and when I talked to him, uh, he said, yeah, uh, I'll just have Atlantic buy it for me. Well, Atlantic didn't buy it for him, so that's when it ended up in your hands eventually. And, you know, there was, even in the middle of this, there was another, uh, his manager or agent back East had sent him a jukebox like it, same model. Oh, it was. Huh?
0: Uh, I said it was, I didn't know it was the same model.
1: Yeah, sent the same model to it, to us. Uh, uh, they called me up and they said, uh, this jukebox guy back there calls me up and says, um, hey, can you do me a favor? I just shipped a jukebox up to Bruno Mars's house. And I'm thinking...
0: Sounds familiar.
1: What? (laughs) And he says, uh, yeah, I just shipped it up there and I wonder if you'd do me a favor and opened up the crate and set it up. And I said, what is it? he said, it's a Seabird J. I said, well, this, this is weird. Okay. So we went up there, Trevor and I went up there and... We smelled the jukebox from outside because it had been in sandy in the basement underwater. Wow. So we opened the door and here it is sitting in the, the big crate sitting right there. Was it still in the crate? Uh, I don't recall. I don't think I don't think it was. And was it Katrina or it was Sandy? Was it? I, I don't know. It was one of those. I think, it the,
0: was the, I, think I, I remember you telling me the story. Yeah. That it was in Hurricane Katrina.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And underwater.
1: And uh, and the wood was all expanded and, and they had painted what was chrome with a spray can instead of chrome. Oh. the amplified the speaker. Everything was ruined. Totally ruined.
0: Well, and, Now all is right in the world. Bruno has his World Series ball. He officially has his unorthodox jukebox at his house. I have a replacement that is phenomenal. In fact, I like how the new one lights up even a little bit more. And it really is the heart of my house. Uh, I mean, I built a whole room around it and it's absolutely magic. It doesn't matter if it's adults or little kids, people come over and we sit around and we can just do that jukebox for hours. Uh, I was wondering, Dawn, I know that you just have so much wisdom. Will you tell us like a little bit of the history of jukeboxes? I I remember you even telling me like the origin of the word juke and why they were called that.
2: Uh (laughs) Uh-oh.
1: So, Basically, the word juke is J-O-O-K, and it's the the Gula language of uh, Senegal, French West Africa, and uh, this language was brought up by slaves who lived off the uh, uh, island in the islands off the coast of uh, Southern California, uh, Southern, Southern Carolina, North mm-hmm. Carolina, South Carolina, and um, they would, they would come to town on the weekends and, uh, and, and they couldn't stay in the town. They had to go to uh, outside road houses and the road houses would have uh, dancing and drinking and everything. And um, they had these Nickelodeons in there playing records. And because sometimes these uh, establishments became known for uh, prostitution they were called cat houses or can houses. And to go juking is to drive from one di- uh, diner or roadhouse to another, drink and dance and drink and dance. And eventually, according to the books, it, you would take a, a lady to a cabin in the back. Oh. That was juking. And that's the license plate on my truck.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. It doesn't say just juking? <laughs>
1: no, this is juking. Okay. Yeah. And so that's the, that's the word jukebox came from, because it was, uh, the places were known as juke joints and then the, then the jukebox came from there. When you, disorderly and to mess around.
0: Hmm, disorderly and to mess around, I love it. When you yeah. When you started your business in 1971, Did you start it knowing you were going to be servicing high-end clients? Or did you start it um, more because of what was going on at the time with jukeboxes in different stores or restaurants, things like that?
1: Not at all. I started it because I wanted to run my own own radio station. Mm -hmm. That was my whole goal. I didn't have any idea. I didn't know anything about jukeboxes, Did, you know, but I g- going back to, to high school and great and uh, college ASU.
0: Oh, yeah. That's I where it. I went. Give them hell devils. Sagan. That's where I went. Give them hell devils. ASU.
1: <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. I went there. <laughs> um, so and I, I took uh, marketing and uh, our teacher was uh, a former uh chairman of Coca-Cola. So he knew a little bit about marketing. That's all I remember at ASU. I don't know when they are long. Anyhow, at ASU, I, I, I would hear radio and just think, I can do better than this. it just got to be something better. So I called the local top 40 people and they said, uh, you need to stay in college and learn everything. And I said, I don't want college, I want to be a radio. So I went to Don Martin School of Radio and Television, Broadcasting, Arts and Sciences in Hollywood. And I got my FCC license and I went out and and, and did radio. But I, one of my first stations I worked at was an FM in Bakersfield. And I made it, uh, it was a top, uh, I turned it top 40. This is one, one of the first FM stations to ever play top 40 music in stereo. Pretty cool.
0: Cool. I, I love in California how there's so many legendary stations all up and down the coast.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, the one I worked at I'd love was uh, Casey in Oxnard. That was the farm station for KRLA, which was up against KJ, which were the two big, big stations back in the 60s and 70s.
0: But so wait a minute, I still don't really 100% understand. You wanted to own a radio station. Definitely. You didn't know that much about jukeboxes. Did you think enough people were just going to put quarters in that you were on your way?
1: So I had a party and I rented a jukebox because I, I was I was so tired of people falling into my records and my record player after having a few drinks, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, I need, to, I need to be able to have the music so that people can pick it when they want it because I was putting it on cassettes and reel-to-reel tapes. And, you know, I was trying to to make the music play and then have to want to dance to it at that point or time. So I rented a jukebox from an old man and a pinball machine. And it was the best party we ever had. And everybody Mm. said, man, where did you get this? This is so cool. And I'm thinking, well, this is maybe what I should do. And that's why I started, I said, I got to come up with a business to buy a radio station there was one for sale for $75,000 at daytime in Phoenix. And I was just gonna have my own radio station. But now this was maybe my way to get a station. I did not intend to do this for more than you know a couple of years and then sell it to buy this radio station. But I kept getting stories done on me. All the networks did stories on me and features from around the world. And it, you know, uh, it just, I just never looked back. Although we tried lots of times to get radio stations going. I did, with celebrities.
0: I have I have radio questions for you. But I, first, I want to dive more in on the jukebox business in the 70s and 80s because um, I, I think it's just fascinating. I mean, I'm 43 years old. And so I can definitely remember... Growing up and going to restaurants and begging for, you know, quarters and like waiting for my song to come up and things like that. And I think about really sad news in LA Cafe 101 is closing down because of COVID. And that's one of my favorite little diners with a great little jukebox in it. But what was it really like in the heyday um, for your business? Both, I would love to hear like, who were some of the iconic people calling you for jukeboxes, and then also the business? I mean, this is where I love talking to Trev because you used to put him in charge of changing out records, right?
1: Yes. So I was approached by um, May Company. Was it May Company and um, Robinson? Robinson's May Department the Store.
0: Department Store. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I said to them, I would like to put a jukebox in your, in your young girls' uh, clothing department. And I think it will help with sales. And they said, eh. So they, they accepted my offer and they put it, we put a jukebox in the Wilshire and Santa Monica Beverly Hills store. Unbeknownst to me, the worst one for selling the young girls' clothing. So we put a jukebox in there with all the top, t- top 40 hits of now, and it would play and you could come in downstairs and you would hear music. And if you liked that music, you would find it. And if you made a selection or two, you wouldn't walk away. You would look around to buy clothing. So it became immediately their biggest selling department in, in all of the departments in all the stores. So then we took it over and we had a little deal where um, we would buy these records and we basically was, uh, was it 91X? That we, no, the Mighty 690. The Mighty 690 was our go-to station for the music that we were picking. And um, we would get all the records back. And this, in these days, every artist had a a picture sleeve. Mm -hmm. And this was the eighties and... um, so that was a lot of fun doing that. And Trevor, yeah, he was, they would try to do all of them, you know, in one day. How can you do them from Santa Barbara to San Diego and La Jolla? And It was crazy. It was 19 of them. 13 minutes from the time they got out of the truck to the time they went back, they would tell me sometimes.
0: What about, um, because you were a radio person and you're an absolute music junkie, talk about the magic of when artists used to release 45s and singles, the A side to the B side, right? And then every once in a while, there would be a B side of a record that might actually bubble up.
1: Oh, oh yes, yeah, well, a lot of the artists, we were starving for more music. So we flipped the records over to and played them. And sometimes they were actually better. I, I can tell you another little story. i try to make it really short. I worked at KRLA in 1965 and 66 uh, in Pasadena, which was a top 40 station. And they threw away about 800 records every Friday because they had, they would, the records would come in and they would put them in bins that would be Atlantic, Atco, uh you know columbia capital and these bins would only be able to hold so much of that label and then they'd pull these out at the one end and they'd say well i don't know who this is throw it away oh yeah oh yeah we should play this one this sounds good new artists new artists would get thrown away because these stations are too big and too big a market to be breaking artists Mm -hmm. so so i would every friday after work i would back my 54 chevy up and get in the dumpster and take all these records and throw them in my trunk, And i take them home to my $125 a month apartment at, on Orange and um, Hollywood Boulevard and right across from the Don Martin School of Radio and Television, Broadcasting, Arts and Sciences. And I also worked at um, a Pontiac dealer, a Chieftain Pontiac in downtown LA on Pico. And then in the afternoon I went up, I worked at KRLA and then I went to radio school at night. And then I came home and watched uh, Alfred Hitchcock presents. So um, this, the, I took these records and, and I took them home and I would listen to them in a little record player in the apartment and, and Trevor wasn't around but we had a son and uh, my wife and a cat and I would play them and I'd say, this is good. This is good. And I, you know, I'd listen to these records. So I pull out this one record on the Bang label. Now the Bang label only had one hit prior to this uh, which was Hang on Slippy by the McCoys. So I take this to KRLA and I'm going to take it in and present it to Dick Moreland, who was a program director, music director. But um, Johnny Hayes, who was a, had just come in to work weekends, says, what do you got there, Don? I says, I got this, I think it's a cool record. We're playing Hanky Panky by Tommy James and the and, I think, and And I think this fits right in with this. And he says, let me take it in. I'll take it to him. And I said, No, let me take it. He's, he, he takes it in. They jump on this record. It's a nobody artist named Neil Diamond. Ah. Uh. KH, they did they, they, they deem it their record because it's a year old. It was, it had already gone through this whole row and now was thrown out. So this record was nobody could get it. And so KRLA is promoting it as their artist and KHJ doesn't know what to do about it, but eventually everybody, everybody had to play it. Later on, I took those same kind of records that were, I thought were cool. And I've got some in my jukebox that anybody hears it, they, God, that is good music. And I took it to that little FM station in, in, in uh, Bakersfield that I've talked that old man into letting me program it. And I played those records on that station and the kids were going to the record store saying, I want to buy this record. And the, and the record stores go to the distributors and the distributors don't have them. And they said, we don't know what this stuff is. It's a year and a half old now. And so you had to listen to our station to hear that song. You couldn't buy it, couldn't get it anywhere. So that's what you know, I did with those flip sides.
0: It's so funny, because I think the reason I got into radio was not because I wanted to be a DJ and talk, but because there is no better feeling than loving a song and playing it for a friend, right? And when you have the opportunity to do that for millions of people, it's funny. I mean, that's such a gift in radio, um And the jukebox is really kind of the same, right? You're picking the songs at the party. Yeah. And uh, that's such a magic feeling. You were a real pioneer in radio, especially in the days when radio was switching from AM to FM. And then, you know, early in the 90s, the uh, Telecommunications Act passed and radio really started to consolidate. What do you really miss the most about the golden age of radio?
1: I think I got out of it about the about the end of it, so to speak, because before me there was just the, the disc jockeys had so much freedom, and you know eventually that was all taken away from them. And one guy could be programming twenty five radio stations and markets he had never ever been in you know before. So I, I, I miss those, I miss, uh, who, was the, who was the gorilla guy? What was his name? Jack Armstrong. Jack Armstrong. <laughs> oh my God, what a jock that was. Um, and then Dave Hull, the old hullabalooer, who just passed away. He was a good friend. Um, there were so many that, you know, in my area, I, I didn't go to New York or other cities, but I knew of all these guys on WLS. When I worked at was there was Bob Hudson and Dave Hull and Dick Andy, the wildlife in from uh, WLS Chicago, the world's largest store. Um, uh, Johnny Hayes, uh, Bob Eubank, these are all great names, and, and over at KHJ. Matter of fact, at KHJ, when I was going to radio school at Don Martin School of Radio and and Broadcasting Arts and Sciences, Don, Don the real Don Steele at KHJ taught classes. And to make a point one day, he mooned us in the class, and we had one girl in the class. And I know when I, I, I went and met him over at uh, Paramount, where the, uh, the station was at, and he sat me down and he says, you know, it doesn't matter how many stations you work at, as long as you can show that it was either an increase in position or money. So yeah. I, I worked at 11 radio stations in seven and a half years. And Trevor worked at like four and 20 years.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, people used to, when they were just mom and pop radio stations, they really used to move around and people used to steal people. Um, I'm curious, you were talking about living in LA and your $125 a month rent apartment off Orange and Hollywood or whatever, which completely blows my mind. Is there an era of the LA music scene um, that resonates with you most? Like, Was it the 70s and the Troubadour and Lou Adler or the 80s and the Sunset Strip or... Um,
1: I think, yeah. I think the 60s, I mean, yeah. I used to hang out at Gold Star.
0: I, and, and I don't know about Gold Star. Well, Tell us a little about the LA um, history in the 60s. When
1: Vine and Santa Monica, back mm-hmm. in an alley behind other buildings, that's where Phil Spector had the Wall of Sound. Okay. Are you familiar with Wall yeah, of Sound?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. And was Gold Star a recording studio then?
1: Wow. Yeah, I, I remember being there one time and, uh, um, was it Lou Adler that was doing it? Um, Herb about. It. He was hmm. in a session and I was sitting there in the back and somebody came in and said, um, whoever's got that Oldsmobile Scenic Cruiser, it's parked in um, Cher's sister's parking place. And and he's, and, and he's, he throws me his keys and says, can you move it for me? And I went out there and I moved his car so she could park her pink. 1965 Mustang in there. And that wasn't even Cher. That was her sister. <laughs> so That's- I think, um, you know, Gazares, you probably never heard of Gazari's, but that was a, a, a big place in LA. Uh, and of course, uh, was she a go-go? Yeah. Uh, I remember, I've, I remember going there when it was nothing that was, it was over with. It was done at one point in time. And
0: that was because, you know, I grew up in Seattle. And so my knowledge of the LA music scene, I think about the Sunset Strip and, you know, I know, so was the Sunset Strip really, like, were there multiple venues as early as the 60s or did that really add on later?
1: No, no, there was Rainbow Room and all those kind of things Okay, in the mid-60s, maybe the early 60s.
0: And what were the biggest local acts at that time that really broke out of LA? Doors. The doors, got it. That's that's incredible. Um, you were telling me a little bit, uh, my old boss used to call you quite a bit, true or false, Jimmy Iovine.
1: Yes, Jimmy would call me up and say, Don, this is Jimmy. Like I have to know Jimmy.
0: Yeah. That's, I mean, that sounds about right. His phone was always on fire. You could mention anybody and he'd just start calling them. Um, I don't know if I ever saw a jukebox at his house, but he probably would give them to people, right?
1: He did. He gave them to, well, Ted is the one who uh, basically, you know, it was those two guys together, but Ted's the one who I think was like paying for these things. And Jimmy was just, buying them, you know, and I was delivering them to Tupac and Snoop and uh, Doctor and Suge. Uh, and I do didn't you
0: remember listen. the day, Don, do you remember the day you delivered a jukebox to Suge Knight's house? And was he there?
1: I don't think so. I, I don't even remember what, I thought Suge was the one I delivered to a little house in Claremont or okay. Montclair, or was it Claremont and, uh, but yeah, Montclair. There's, it's, it's, it was out there in the eastern part of the of LA, and it was a nondescript house. It was under construction, it looked like, or being remodeled, had no floor. I rolled the jukebox across wood into a, like a living room, and that was it. Never saw anybody else except these construction guys.
0: Now it's probably safer that way.
1: Huh? <laughs>
0: probably safer that way.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Now with Tupac, um, I delivered that jukebox to a a place in the Western area of uh, like Calabasas or something. And um, he bought one of these, well, he got the same thing, the uh, Wurlitzer bubbler, the reproduction machine and um, set it up in this room. And then he asked about buying some speakers for it. Which can you see the speaker up behind me? Yeah. Okay. So he wanted two of those speakers, and uh, there were like they were like five hundred a piece or something, and uh, so then I said, okay, I'll order them. i don't have them. And before I got a chance to order them, I get a call from um, I don't know whether it's his manager or his agent, and he says. Um, uh, I want to cancel the order for the speakers. Uh, Tupac has been shot. What? I did. It wasn't even on the news. It was like, did this this guy just like it? It just happened, and he just called me the first thing to cancel the order.
0: That is insane.
1: And he he actually just called me maybe two months ago to see if I wanted to buy a
0: jukebox. Same agent, same manager. Not Tupac but yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but that that is an incredible story and one you've never told me before I can't believe that story um, but that- I, I've got to ask though I've got to ask because I love I am a Tupac fan California Love is probably one of my top three favorite songs of all time um, and I just I I never got to meet him but it sounds like it, it felt like he was a good guy like he really was excited thought- about music huh
1: I thought so didn't and- he guess he was tall seemed like he was tall to me yeah hmm. but then there's um Snoop Dogg
0: mm-hmm. he's tall for sure
1: yeah never met That's him tall. never met him oh. I'm, I'm commissioned to go take one of these jukeboxes to him now to my knowledge he was nobody at this time he lived in an apartment on a hill they built in like Northridge and I think it was called a hill or something like that and it was 26 steps straight up, no landing, no stopping, 360-pound jukebox, me and a pool table guy. And I went up there first and I knocked on the door. A little girl answers, a, a hot little girl answers, not a little girl, but a lady. A lady. <laughs> and uh and uh i I told her we're bringing up a jukebox total surprise to her i go down and i say there's a really pretty girl up there we i have to take you up to meet her and we just started that climb non-stop all the way up there that's a lot of work and a lot and there's no room on the sides for to make any leaning crazy
0: i'm laughing because it's like the hip-hop version of that old um Laurel and Hardy uh, movie where they're delivering the p- piano
2: up the stairs. Yeah. Silver Lake. Yeah. That's, that's yeah.
0: fine. Um, so I, it's really interesting. Vinyl is having this resurgence and is probably more popular than ever right now. I think it would be a safe bet to say you have the biggest record collection of anybody I know. Probably. How many records are we talking?
1: Probably about I would think maybe 15,078s, maybe 30,000 or 40,000 albums and 465 45s.
0: Wow, 465,045.
1: Yeah. Didn't I say thousand? No, I didn't
0: say that. yeah. <laughs> Just to be clear. So, yeah. I mean, that, that is absolutely insane. Where do you keep all your records?
1: Well, we have a building in the back, the library. It's got uh, rows of uh, 200,000 per row. They're 24 feet long. They're eight feet high and they're four feet wide. At the bottom are 78s, and the rest are all 45s. And then mm-hmm. we have them on on uh, shelving like you would see in a, you know, on a Costco building. Uh, pardon? How, or a library? Yeah.
0: How no, often do you? Use them, um, how? How often do you rotate your records in your jukeboxes?
1: Oh, that—that's not a good, nice question for me because even some of my machines don't have anything in them. Oh, like the—it's like the the guy who repairs shoes and his kids don't have any.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of work. So now, yes. if somebody does want to get a jukebox, the styles and the models range so you know so why like where does somebody even start i am so lucky that i got the jukebox that i got because i absolutely love it with all my heart and can't imagine having another one and it just fell into my lap but if somebody is thinking about it or looking what do they do
1: first of all i say what the heck do you want a jukebox for when they got five hundred thousand songs on your watch yeah <laughs> and they all come back basically with the same answer regardless of their age. And their age is 24 to 80 years old. And they say, you know, I've always wanted a jukebox and are you gonna sell me one? Mm-hmm. And half the time they have no idea what they want. You know, first of all, I say, you know, 45, 78 CDs. We even have machines that hold 50 albums and play them. And that then I, if they're away from me, I send them a questionnaire about you know, stereo or mono or what speed or how many selections or all these kind of things. And uh, they fill that out. And then I kind of really have to get an idea of their budget. I try to tactfully, you know, get an idea because what I'm getting in these recent times are people who probably never thought of a jukebox until they got stuck at home and thought, we need a jukebox. Yeah, and they are feeling like they could buy one of these jukeboxes for two or three thousand dollars and it's like yes we have them for that kind of money but not the one you're looking at right you're looking at you know a rolls royce and you would like to pay for a 85 Ford station wagon so that's the first thing that separates it and that's a so the prices on on the, the lower price machines are anywhere from like 2800 to maybe 3500 And then they kind of take a jump to like seven or $8,000. I just, but I
2: mean,
0: you are buying a serious piece of equipment, right? Like I think about like my jukebox is one of those things I joke that if my house was on fire, I'd want to run out with, but there's no way I could. Because I, I mean, like how much does that thing even weigh?
1: 360 pounds.
0: 360 pounds, I mean, it is a gigantic hunk of metal. And even I'm so appreciative when I moved houses, like you would not let the movers move it. Like it was very, very, very serious. You needed to come over and be the person to move it.
2: Yeah.
1: So yeah.
0: Precious cargo.
1: I, I have to, yes. I, Trevor just showed me a note and what you had just said reminded me of this story. So um, I am standing at uh, in, in Studio City, or no, Sherman Oaks, at a store that sells jukeboxes kind of like me. There were there were a lot of competitors at one point. And um, the kid behind the counter says, don't look now, but I think that's Tom Petty behind you. And I turn around and say, Tom Petty, old asshole, what the hell are you doing, and we hug. And he pushes me away and he says, Don, Don, gotta tell you. Uh, the fire was going on and the only thing we saved was the, I got the roadies to go up there and bring the jukebox down the stairs. That's all we saved. And he says, it's over in, in, the, uh, in the storage facility and uh, I want you to come fix it. I just shipped that jukebox, by the way, to his daughter in Connecticut. Oh, That jukebox has such a story because his first wife basically bought it for him And then they split and she got it. And then she wanted to give it to her daughter. And her daughter said, I don't have room for it at that time. And she says, but don't tell my mom, I'm gonna give it to my father for Christmas. So I sneak it over there to the the Malibu house and put it in a place where Dana, his wife says, this would be a good spot for it. And I tell her it's a great spot and then Tom passes away and then Adrian has a place for her for the jukebox now in Connecticut so I picked it up at their where they keep all their instruments and everything and uh actually we had taken it from his hideaway I forgot all about that it was in his hideaway that nobody was supposed to know about and except people like me, you know, and it was there. And then we moved it to the Malibu house and then we moved it over there. So um, anyhow, it's been around and now it's with his daughter and, you know, she was involved in, in the, the last music stuff, stuff that they were putting together for.
0: Um, wow, that's so that's so special. I mean, jukebox is definitely Something I hope that'll be in the family forever. Um, I wanna see, uh, you know, before we wrap up, if there's any questions from the audience with our fireside chat. Um, I think Forrest is leaning in to unmute, coming in from Nashville. Forrest, do you have a question?
2: Yeah, uh, I was really fascinated about your uh, story about Gold Star. I just love that recording studio. And uh, when I was a kid, I saw the movie La Bamba, and uh, that's how I found out about Gold Star, is because Ricky Valens recorded his, uh, all of his recordings at Gold Star, and... uh, Delphi, Delphi Records. Yeah, Delphi Records, and uh, that was just fascinating to me, like, I didn't expect during this uh, little fireside chat about jukeboxes to be talking about Gold Star, that's just absolutely fascinating to me that you got to go hang with Phil Spector up there. And by the way, that place is a nail salon now, which is one of the most depressing things in the universe to me. I know,
1: I know, I know. And across the street is a Yoshinoya or something at the corner. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. I actually was in there involved in producing a record uh, on the Playboy label with um, Paul Rubio. Who produced a song called um, uh, Oh? It's in Spanish. Le mucho que te quiero. It was a hit, American hit. Le mucho que te means "I love you," not you in particular, but
2: <laughs> what? <laughs>
0: what? And uh, okay, I think Stacy <laughs> okay, yeah, oh, has a question too. Okay, what? Yeah, Stacy has a question. I love this so much um I wanted to know I had a a few questions my first question was what is your absolute favorite thing about jukeboxes like if you had to like one thing that you love the most about them what would it be all
1: jukeboxes all jukeboxes
0: uh yeah I, I mean or or just in general I I've I've loved this whole conversation I've just been like glued to the screen like this um but what you love most about them
1: I just love them cranked up wide open with good rock and roll. I had a customer come by yesterday and I put on this jukebox back here. It's a, it's called a disco. It's a 1979 Seaburg. I put the disco ball in there. I don't know if you can see that. And I cranked up, um, oh, River Deep, Mountain High, Phil Spector, probably one of the greatest rock and roll records ever made. And I cranked it up and, And he stood right in front of it. And it just blows your ears off. And he is just going like this. Eyes shut. You know? So I love these. I've got a 1948 Seabrick sitting over here. And it is even loud. And it plays 78 RPM records. But I I just love jukeboxes cranked up. All jukeboxes.
0: I don't know what it is. But there's some records that just sound better on a jukebox. Like in mine, I have a record that... I knew the song, I liked the song, but it wasn't one of my favorite songs of all time, but it sounds so good in my jukebox and it's Holland Oats, Rich Girl.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, Rich Girl. Um, you know, the uh, the jukebox is why, the jukebox is what sold records in the old days. Uh, if you read on my website about the Seberg M100A from 1948, 49, That jukebox is what sold records, and all jukeboxes sold records, because you could hear it on the radio, but when you bought the record, um, well, hearing it on the radio, it didn't necessarily sound good. It was just a little oval radio in your dashboard, or it was, you know, something in your house, a little table radio. On the jukebox, it sounded great. So records were made to sound great on jukeboxes. Hmm. So jukeboxes were a commanding thing. And here's something, a a sideline. Jukeboxes also, besides making songs, were a a form of um, cheating in a way because the jukebox operator, he's got 40 jukeboxes out on location and he sends a guy out to collect money and to look at the popularity meter, which told you which songs were the most played. Oh, yeah. So A guy could be honest and put the money in the bag instead of putting it in his pocket. And then he could look at the little thing and, and turn it around and turn it around and it would tell him, okay, here's the last song. This is the song that was the biggest on street jukebox. I'll write this down. That guy could go through all those things and write down whatever he wanted to. Then he would turn that back into his boss. And all the other guys would come around. They'd give their findings also, but none of them had to be truthful. Nobody could check them, so you could you could fake it. And so then those are turned over from the jukebox operator to Cashbox and Billboard and those magazines to to rate the songs.
0: Wait, let me ask you, this could be a stupid question, but now you're kind of blowing my mind because I didn't know about the popularity meters and things like that inside jukeboxes. Did, based off what was played, would you pay different royalties to artists? Or once you bought the record, you bought the record and it was promotional, like...
1: Well, jukebox operators never paid royalties. Right. In fact, the, the record companies would say how many jukeboxes you have and and they would send you the 40 records one for each jukebox because yeah. you they they know that you're going to sell records for them
2: yeah promotion so
1: it, it didn't happen until about 1980 there was a guy who wrote magazines a, a, a little article a, a little weekly thing uh he, he published that told you how much the value of a current product uh, old used products were jukeboxes pinball video games shuffle alleys and he says, don't let them get into knowing how many jukeboxes you have and where they are, because they will get you. And so he couldn't stop them. And they he came in and they wanted to know uh, how many jukeboxes you had. And they wanted a, like a, a dollar a, a jukebox uh, a, a month or a year or something. Well, once they found out where you had all these jukeboxes, they just... Kept running the prices up, so and that's why lots of times you don't find these jukebox operators in the yellow pages or the phone book because they don't want to be found or heard or you know it's it was it was vice it's prostitution it's gambling it's all that kind of thing that's why all these people in Arizona these old men retire from Chicago because they somebody in their family was murdered or their restaurant was blown up.
0: Whoa! Now I know Corey has a question. Also,
2: yes, yes. Hello. Um, you talked about uh, um, back in the day uh, being a DJ, and uh, I was just wondering what your um, digging process was like finding music and how's changed uh till now. Like what how you try to find music now?
1: You mean for being for radio when I was yeah doing- for radio yeah. I really had a good ear for it. Um. I, I love bubblegum music, so I was on the air in, you know, 1969 and with the Archies and the 1910 Fruit Gum Company and all that kind of stuff. And I most of the stations I worked at, except one time I worked for Buck Owens and I was Travis Stone on the air at that station uh, playing country music. But um, I, I could play a record and right away determine, this is good for our station. This is top 40. This is what kids are going to like. And so, once again, I was—I handled the music at almost every station I worked at, and uh, I just, uh, you know, I could feel it. And I'm one of those persons that doesn't need to know when the when the record's going to start or the vocals going to start because I feel it. Matter of fact, I was I was being interviewed um, at a radio station in Bakersfield in 1966, and they wouldn't let me. Um, The two guys the manager and the program director were it was a mama's and papa's concert but they wouldn't let me stay there so they sent me out to the station out in the desert and i waited they came back and they were both drunk and they put me down in the music room which would have had one turntable and a bunch of these records i'd never heard of in my life and they expected me to play dj and it was embarrassing and that's when i left and went and started this fm stereo station but um I don't know, I just, I, I can feel the music and uh, I, I can sense that it's gonna be a hit or not. I've been wrong with maybe something like "Pop the Magic Dragon, if you guys would even know that at all.
0: <laughs> Every once in a while, there's one. I mean, I'll tell you. I, I made Lady Gaga open for Shwezi at Raging Waters. So, uh, you know, it, it happens.
1: Well, yeah. I I was, I you know, I started the station, a, a television station on the internet. Did you know I did that?
0: I think we did talk about that, that you were really early on with doing yeah. digital radio too.
1: And I broke Britney Spears before Kiss did.
0: Oh man, well, that that's when I was still in Seattle, so I'm not gonna arm wrestle you over that one. <laughs> um, okay, I know that we're gonna talk a little bit offline about my juke before okay. we wrap up. Trev, is there anything else you wanna say about your dad or any uh, favorite stories you wanna bring up?
1: Oh, what about the... Uh... Delivered to? Did I did I already talk about the delivery to Ted Fields up in Santa Barbara and the
0: machine guns? Oh, oh yeah. Ted Field. So, if people don't know, Ted Field is the man that started Interscope Records with Jimmy Iovine. Yeah. And you just said a delivery in Santa Barbara with machine guns. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the Shug Knight story.
1: <laughs> okay, so, but if you know, all the, here's the invoice. As a matter of fact, <laughs> for for Ted Fields. Yeah. Uh,
0: 1984.
1: Wow. Okay, this is in the early, early days. And this is after I had already been doing business with him. Uh-huh. You know, Ted Ted came to me through Hefner who lives across the street. Wow. At that time, I don't know anymore. But so um, I've already got stuff in Ted's house across from Hefner. And now he says, I want some stuff up in my, uh, like hideaway up in Hope Ranch in Santa Barbara. So he picks out a whole bunch of stuff. My other son, Travis, and I load the truck up. We're two hours late getting up there. So we're driving down to Hope Branch Road. It's a exclusive area. And we're looking at all these like farms. There's, you know, 20 acres out front. And then there's a big building in the back. We figured these are hotels. So we go along, we figured this has got to be the right address here. But look at that's a hotel back there. Well, we will done that. So we go down this tree-lined road with houses, but those are guest homes. We get up, and all of a sudden, just as we're getting where we think that we're going to be going into an area with a house, humongous floodlights come on and blind us completely. I slam on the brakes. The doors are ripped open. We're both pulled out, and men standing there with machine guns. It uh, It was Ted's house. And he came out and apologized, and he just says, "Kidnapping." Whoa! You can't, you can't let your kids be available to be kidnapped or anybody.
0: That's so crazy that he Whoa. was living that lifestyle and living yeah. in that kind of fear in 1984. Then he would later partner up with Suge Knight, right? And then that's when he oh, really yeah. had problems.
1: <laughs> oh my God! Yeah.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's so funny. I have to tell you, um, the light bulb just went off over my head before we had this conversation because I, I mean, I can't say enough how much my jukebox means to me. And ever since I was very young, I always wanted a jukebox. And when I was in Seattle and I started working and I started my career, I used to even say, I'm going to get a jukebox before I ever buy a new car. Right, that's how bad I wanted one. And it's funny because I was researching when I was in Seattle getting a jukebox and you may know this guy, I never met him but there's a guy in Seattle, uh, Jukebox City is his company. And um, they do all the jukeboxes up there. And I remember somebody I know who has a few jukeboxes said, this is the guy in Seattle. And they said, but he's kind of quirky like he may come over to your house and use your toothbrush. And I always thought that was so weird. Like, why would he use his toothbrush? But then I was talking to Trev the other day <laughs> and we were talking about my needle and my, um, <laughs> and he goes, you might want to get a new toothbrush and just clean it right out. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's why he would use your toothbrush. He wasn't brushing his teeth.
1: Yeah, yeah. Although my dad yelled at me because you really shouldn't—they're too delicate on some machines. So. Oh well, there's stiffness of toothbrushes, and you know some are really fl- flimsy, and others yeah. are stiff, and it's a little scary if you use a stiff toothbrush. So.
0: Oh, okay. Well, we'll we'll stay on the line, and we'll yeah. uh, get into those in- intricacies. Um, thanks so much for chatting with us. Um, really important question, Don. Do you want people to find you? Like, I know you're so busy right now. Like, are you actively um, still selling jukeboxes, servicing? Like, uh, sure. how much uh, How much should, what should we tell people?
1: I would, yeah, call me. Uh, you know, if you might be able to afford it, you might not. But I would say that uh, at this point, probably 85 to 90% of the people who I deal with buy from me. Yeah. So and your different.
0: house is really your showroom, right? It like is. people come okay. to you.
1: 15 jukeboxes in here. And then we actually do have a showroom now, okay. a shopping center.
0: And you also have games. No. Nah. No?
1: Well, I have in my house games, but I, we don't oh. sell games.
0: You don't? Okay, Just good. Jukeboxes. I didn't have anywhere to put a pinball machine, anyways.
1: <laughs> <laughs> a cocktail table, a cocktail table.
0: Uh, okay cool well we're gonna put all your information your website your number up online but thanks so much for hanging out with the idea fountain and thanks to everybody for logging on i could talk about music and radio and jukeboxes all day but i didn't want to go too far down the rabbit hole was it just me or did don actually drop a major gem there a little clue That potentially could help solve the murder of who killed Tupac. That really blew my mind. Uh, Thanks for joining us for season four. No matter what podcast app you're uh, subscribing on, if you could hit a review and tell your friends, that would be incredible. And don't forget to go to juliepilot.co to sign up for the Idea Fountain newsletter and hear all episodes. Hope everybody's having a happy new year, and we'll see you again very soon on the Idea Found.